right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the ICU Ed and Toddcast. ICU Ed, like education, Ed and Todd, Toddcast podcast. I'm your host, Eddie. And every time I say I need to wrangle Todd, this time was quite impressive. Todd just told me, hey, I'm at the ATS conference and didn't give me any further directions on where to find him. So literally finding a needle in a haystack over here. But I did find him. Uh, we're here for our ATS edition of the podcast. There were not a lot of new breaking critical care articles at ATS. There was a lot of breaking pulmonary articles which is not the scope of our podcast. ATS is sort of uh, sort of following us, Eddie, in that, you know, they did Cape Cod as a presentation here, and we kind of have already fleshed that out. They did Clovers as a presentation here. We've had a discussion about Clovers. So they're a little bit behind us, that's all. Yeah, a little bit. They did a they did one of the the ACE ARB uh, RAS system inhibition in COVID, and Todd is tired of talking about COVID. So yeah, well, I've been tired of talking about COVID for about two and a half years now, but it appears that the rest of the critical care community is starting to catch up. Well, we're we're going to be talking about the article that dropped yesterday, uh, May twenty first, in twenty twenty three, intervention to promote communication about goals of care for hospitalized patients with serious illness, a randomized clinical trial published in JAMA by Dr. Randall Curtis et al. As many of our listeners know, uh, Randy Curtis was one of the legends of our field uh, and who had passed away recently. Uh, I I didn't get the chance or the pleasure to meet Dr. Curtis, Todd. Have you? Oh, yeah, I actually knew Randy, and obviously his passing was was a very unfortunate situation. You know, he obviously is going to have a huge legend, and his his name is going to be known forever with palliative care in the ICU and sort of end-of-life care in the ICU. And he, you know, really pretty much developed this field. It's a little hard to develop this field because people are like, what do you mean he developed the field? It's something that we've done. But, you know, he brought science to it and actually the study of it and clearly advanced the way we think about end-of-life care in the ICU and the way we we deliver it and quote-unquote treat our patients. And I, I don't mean that in a bad way, but you know, what we do and how we ask questions and all of that is largely because of his research and his scientific input. It's just amazing how we think about it today compared to you know, when I started critical care 20 plus years ago, uh, it was part of what we did, but we just kind of assumed it was part of what we did and didn't really think about how we did it and best ways to do it and what the patients wanted and all the things that, that Randy kind of brought into the, the understanding of end of life care. Yeah. And I mean, just from a impact perspective, like, and we'll talk about it today, but so much of the background for this trial and the entire field is this groups work from University of Washington. It's yeah, really incredible. absolutely. And and when you think you see something and you're like, oh, you know, this is interesting. And it's sort of in the end of life in the critical care world realm. And it doesn't have J. Randall Curtis as the first author. You look and he's almost always either an author or when you trace it back, it's somebody who he's trained. And so, you know, he really is to kind of go into Italian mafia lore. He really is kind of the godfather of the end of life in the critical care world. Yeah, it's like tracing those research trees. Sorry, Todd, I think you training me is just a dead branch now. Yeah, the roots on that, I think, are, are struggling a little bit. And half the tree is not having new growth. Uh, and the other half of the tree doesn't look that great either. But we'll see. <laughs> Before we talk about this article, I'd just also like to extend a thanks to all of our listeners who are here at the conference who've stopped by and stopped by my poster, stopped me in the hall, say, hey, like, I recognize you from the podcast. You're doing a great job. It's been really humbling. So now you're, all of your all's job is to find Todd, who needs to be humbled. You know, you know what that actually means for you, Eddie? It means you have a face made for a podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, I'd also like to thank, I might pronounce this wrong, I apologize, but Matthew Jabadoon, 
from France who stopped by my poster. We were talking about the science and then we started talking about the podcast. And I, he, he was very kind about it. I was very embarrassed, but he found great interest in our previous discussion about nutriria, specifically about the acronym, which we had said, you know, it sounds like diarrhea, nutrition and diarrhea are not things we want to put together in the same sentence. Well, actually the, the REA, the REA part uh, is the French word for reanimation and which is what they call ICUs. Um, so this would be like Nutra ICU um, if it uh, wasn't under France. So that, thank you for for correcting us. That that's very nice to know. So how does how exactly does that translate with the diarrhea part? Is that like diary reanimation and diaries in the ICU or? No, I don't. I don't think that's true. But I would say like you know if it was like bicar ICU would be bicaria. 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 Yeah. yeah, I suspect that that may be an acronym that we see used here in the near future, but. So a little, a little, let's do a little background first. This is obviously part of what we do in critical care. And I'm older than you. I think most of the readers know that because you make fun of my age during most of these podcasts, but they could just look at our pictures on the podcast logo. They could, but then they'd be sick to their stomach. <laughs> when I trained in the ICU, we didn't really have a palliative care consult service. And so we did a lot of palliative care and it was just part of kind of the ICU training and what you did. And it's kind of fascinating because you know, critical care, I love the evidence in critical care and I love evidence-based medicine and talking about new trials and that sort of stuff. But we were doing palliative care back then kind of before Randy Curtis was doing any of his science and before we kind of had any idea what we should be doing. And then we start getting some science and now we have palliative care consultants who do, you know, in many places, a lot of this work uh, and in other places, at least a little bit of this work in our ICUs and they come in and help and do some end of life. But unfortunately, in today's age in the ICU, you know, we still have, depending on your ICU and what you admit, but you still have high teens to 25 or 30 percent mortality rates in the ICUs. So we still see a lot of people dying in our ICUs. And we've advanced our care of these patients to the point that, and I think you've heard me say this before, Eddie, but many of the deaths that we have in the ICU are what I call negotiated deaths, which is that we know we can't get the patient better and they're not going to survive this, but they're also not so sick that we can't support them and they're going to die regardless of what we do. And in those situations, we have open and transparent discussions with families and sometimes with the patients if they're able to participate about, you know, how do you want this death to occur and how should we go forward with this and what do you want this to look like and that sort of stuff. And, you know, we obviously need lots more information and lots more understanding of the best way to do this. You know, in our ICU, we often will talk about a good death while that's never the outcome that we're hoping for for our patients, when it's obvious that that's the only outcome that's going to happen, you know, our job, I think, as a critical care physician is to try and make that death as good as possible for the patient and the patient's family. And a lot of that is the work that Randy and his mentees and colleagues and all of his collaborators have done. And I think this article is another step in understanding that process and that part of medicine and critical care medicine. Yeah, but that the patient example that you gave is like a case where there it's like slapping you in the face, right? You know that the patient is going to pass away. This article it kind of focuses on a, a different patient population saying, you know, this was all, I think, all hospitalized patients. Uh, but if we're just talking about our ICU patients, even if they don't pass away in the ICU, we know that being in the ICU is a predictor of short to medium term mortality, just being critically ill. I think this is kind of getting at the, well, we've gotten so much better at these goals of care discussions, but we probably should and can be doing more more. And so how do we help prompt providers to have these, I mean, just definitionally uncomfortable conversations? 
I think what you said, Eddie, is important in that there are times in patients' lives where whatever disease that they have kind of changes trajectory or changes course. And we talk a lot about this when a patient comes to the ICU and say they're an oncology patient and they're getting treatment and they're cruising along and they seem to be doing okay, but then something happens and they come to the ICU and they're critically ill. And it's sort of this, this provides an opportunity to revisit what are we doing here? What are the goals? And, you know, should we change the goals and how, how should we try and achieve those goals? And for us, I think it's fairly natural for that to occur when you have a big change in your disease trajectory where you end up in an ICU. But I think I would argue that that's probably true if you end up just as an acute admission to a hospital. If you're an outpatient and you're cruising along in life and then suddenly something happens and you get admitted to a hospital, you know, that's probably an acute disease change and it probably is worthy of having somebody take that opportunity to revisit. This is where you're at now. What would you like for the path forward to look like? And how can we make that happen? Yeah. So despite this trial not being directly for ICU patients specifically, I think this has a lot of impact on our practice. Well, and I think it's very important from at least an American medical standpoint in that lots of our patients die in an ICU. And if you ask them before they went to the ICU, most of them, if not all of them, would tell you they don't want to die in an ICU. And so while it's not directly occurring in the ICU per se, I think goals of care discussion when you're being admitted to the hospital are very critical care centric because, you know, ultimately, if these don't occur, somebody's going to end up in our ICU and likely going to end up in our ICU when they didn't want to be in our ICU. So this trial was a uh, randomized control trial of a clinician-facing communication priming intervention versus usual care. And so I think it's worth explaining what this is. This was a guide that this group from University of Washington had studied previously. They studied in the outpatient setting and saw that their goals of care discussion increased by from 30% to 70%. They did this in, I think, the ICU setting specifically, an inpatient setting, and the goals of care discussions increased from like 5 to 20%. And so this is an intervention that they've proven to be effective. And, and let's be clear, the intervention is directed at the provider, yes, not at the actual patient. Now, ultimately, the hope is, is that the provider engages the patient, but the actual intervention is directed at the provider. Yeah. And previously, it was a pretty labor-intensive process. They had interviewed the patients, gotten some information about their goals of care, and then weaved into the guidance was specific information about the patients. And so this article was looking to see, like, hey, can we automate this more? Can we identify the patients who may benefit from a goals of care discussion, have a more automatic prompting and guide for so you can reach more patients? And is that, is that effective in increasing our goals of care conversations? I think it's a reasonable thought. I think it's a reasonable attempt at an intervention. I think, you know, if you haven't read the article yet, you would take a step back and go, this seems like it's a reasonable intervention and it has a reasonable chance of working and increasing the amount of goals of care discussions and the transparency. And I think the lifting part of it is such that it's you know, a moderate lift, but it's not such a heavy lift that if it works really well, institutions are like, man, I wish we could do that, but there's just no way we could do that. I think institutions can and would adopt it if, if it turns out that it's uh, highly effective. So these patients were any hospitalized patient who was either 
80 years of age or older, or if they were 55 years of age or older and had any of the chronic illnesses that were used by the Dartmouth Atlas Project, which is a study of -of end-of-life care. If they already had palliative care consultation or they had documented goals of care discussions, then they were excluded from the study because they wouldn't, they've already achieved the goal. I found, I think one of the interesting things was their outcome. It was the proportion of patients in the electronic health record who had a document of goals of care discussion within 30 days. And this was done by natural language processing. So they had a machine learning algorithm that looked at all the notes and kind of screened for what might have been a goals of care discussion. And then someone reviewed that afterwards to say yes or no that this was, yes, a goals of care discussion was documented. I find it interesting because there's, I think a lot of times I have goals of care discussions, but I don't think I document it super carefully, maybe not in a way that a a natural language processing algorithm could pick up. Yeah, a couple points here. First for the readers i.e. listeners. Eddie is a a nerdy bioinformatician, so that's why he's like excited about the natural language processing and how they got their outcome here. I I mean, I think it's nice. I think it's a nice way of doing it. I do think that there are potential caveats in it. One is, is that what if you had the conversation and like you said, you're not very good at documenting it. Uh, From the medical legal standpoint, I will tell you that you hear a lot, uh, if it's not documented, it wasn't done. And so, you know, I guess they could say, well, if it's not documented, you know, we don't know that you had one or not. And obviously from a research standpoint, you'd have to use that mantra. If it's not documented, you'd have to assume it wasn't done. That would potentially null the results towards the, or um, sorry, that would potentially bias the results towards the null in that there might be undocumented goals of care conversations in the intervention group that make it look like they didn't occur, you don't get credit for them. And therefore, it makes it look like the intervention isn't as effective as maybe it was. The other thing that that is interesting to me, and I honestly don't know exactly how it plays out, is, is the 30-day time period for the endpoint. Because I obviously have a biased view because of what I see in my practice. But for me, somebody who comes into the hospital who say, for example, is in the control group and doesn't get the intervention, but then does poorly and comes to me in the ICU, might get an intervention because they had one of these changes in their disease trajectory and an opportunity to now rediscuss or reopen the door of what did you want. And that, again, is going to bias you towards the null, as opposed to if you looked at five days or 10 days, that patient may be less likely to have had an event that sent them to the ICU at that point, and therefore they may not have had a, let's call it a natural goals of care discussion that a occurred in the natural disease course that they had. And so I think both both aspects are relevant to understanding the outcomes in that the fact that it had to be documented and not just documented, but they had to be able to pick it up by natural language processing too. So if I write my goals of care discussion in a really funny way and they don't pick it up with the natural language processing, they don't get credit for that. And then the fact that some of these natural goals of care discussions may have occurred in the patient's deteriorating trajectory of their disease course, both of those things would bias towards the null. Yeah, and that makes sense. And going off of that nerdy bioinformatics hat that I have, their intervention was very informatics-based, right? So they screened patients for who were eligible, and then they sent an email to the team, and these were mostly teaching teams, so the attendings, the residents, or the APPs who are on these teams, and then they sent them a single page effectively just reminding them, hey, you got a, you got an email in your inbox that you might want to review about this, the delivering their one page, I think they call it a jumpstart guide for prompting the goals of care discussion. We may have to go into some detail about this paging system for some of the younger listeners, Eddie, because, you know, it used to be how we sort of got notified as physicians. And I actually haven't carried a pager in 10 years. And I don't, 
I suspect you may never have carried a pager. I don't know, but it certainly is not something that's common practice now in, in the care of medicine with all of the cell phones and the other technology that's available. Well, I don't know, Todd. I still have a pager. So maybe you just lost Like yours. for medicine or for like your personal life? Both, actually. Both. In yeah. fact. Yeah. Well, given the fact I have no personal life, then, then we don't have to worry about that part of the pager. And all of any communications that I have go to my cell phone. So, And even though I'm old and technologically challenged, I have figured out how to get them on my cell phone and answer them when needed. And, you know, this is a true story. Todd has actually blocked my number from his cell phone. Uh, a story for a different time. Yeah, twice. Uh, a couple other other details that I think are important to think about. One is this intervention was done at three separate hospitals, all within the same academic system, but three separate hospitals. And there are three kind of different hospitals. There's a kind of safety net hospital. There's kind of a, a universities type academic hospital. And then there's kind of a county hospital. So I think there's some nice heterogeneity there that might increase generalizability of the results. Obviously, it's still within one academic system. It's still within one city. It's still within one state. So there's not overall generalizability to necessarily other countries and other situations, but still kind of nice there. The trial actually runs for a year, a year during COVID, actually, uh, April 2020 to March 2021. I don't know that COVID played a role in this, but you know, it's always nice to keep it in the back of our mind that this was done um, during COVID. And I mean, particularly with goals of care discussions, right? I yeah. feel like there were, at least in, in our practice, you're in my Todd, one of the renewed emphasis on goals of care discussion during COVID. Yeah, especially in the elderly population, that population over the age of 80. At our institution, if that population was admitted, there were real efforts to sit down and talk with those patients about, you know, what what is your goal? What would you want in life? Yeah, so we don't, we don't know if it was the same kind of culture there, but it is important important to point out that this was during COVID. Yeah. And then the other thing I'd say, and I think you were going to get, you're going to get into that, this a little bit with the results, but this uh, in, is a lot of patients. There were 4,000 patients screened in that year and uh, 2,500 of those enrolled. You know, I mean, 2,500 patients in a randomized trial is a big end. That's a good effort. And so, you know, I think that this shows you that the intervention was pretty broadly rolled out. And in general, they were including, you know, almost anybody that met their inclusion criteria. There weren't a lot of exclusions for, for patients being enrolled in this trial. Yeah. So you're referencing their figure one, which was their consort diagram. And so, yeah, so uh, 3,900 patients were screened. They included 2,500 patients. Majority of the patients were excluded for they already had a goals of care discussion, which I think is very reasonable, or they were discharged before the screening. So they were hospitalized and discharged probably within a day, it seems like. It turns out it's probably seven or eight percent uh, of the screened patients were excluded because the clinician didn't want to participate. Remember, this is a clinician-based intervention. I think that's actually really good. I think it means they had buy-in from their clinicians that were willing to do this and to potentially at least hear about the intervention. And I guess we can talk about whether or not we think it actually occurred and whether the translation from prompting the clinician to do it and then the clinician actually doing it. And then I guess the way the trial set up, the clinician actually documenting that they did it. But having said that, they didn't have like a mass exodus of their clinicians saying, I don't, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be part of this. Yeah, no, certainly. So table one is their baseline characteristics, demographics, and it's pretty even between the groups. Their median age was 70. There were slightly more males and females, about 56% male. 
they included, I think, important things for this trial design, which was English proficiency. And so 85% of their patients had no limitation to their speaking English proficiency, which is important when you're talking about goals of care discussions. Chronic comorbidities were pretty same between them. Comorbidity index was the same. And they looked like they enrolled relatively evenly across their three hospitals. There's a little bit less at the community hospital. Uh, that might just be related to volume. Potentially, I don't think that biases the results in any way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, you can only enroll what comes into your hospital. So, you know, the more important thing, I think, in me looking at the three hospitals is just to make sure that they have similar distribution of patients across the three hospitals in each group, because obviously that could really affect things if, you know, more of the patients in the intervention group were enrolled at the community hospital or vice versa or whatever. And, and, and they don't have, any, I, I don't have any concerns there. They look like they did a nice job of the randomization worked between those variables and that they, you know, have similar distributions of patients enrolled from each hospital in each group. So their primary outcome, as we mentioned, was the EHR documented goals of care discussion within 30 days. And this was a positive trial. There was 34% of patients in the intervention group compared to 30.4% of patients in the usual care group, which gave you a adjusted difference of 4.1% and a p-value of 0.03. Let me ask you a question and try and be a little provocative here. And this, I think, is a really hard question, but I expect that you'll do well on it. What do you think in our practice, in our hospital, the percentage of patients with the goals of care discussion in 30 days from hospital the, from the date of hospitalization? Of all hospitals patients? Well, it's not all, right? It's you have to be over 55 and have sure. a comorbidity or you have to be over the age of 80. So you have to try. That's why I think it's a little bit of a hard, hard question because you have to try and think out of that population and then yeah. think of that population. Because it seems to me, and maybe I'm completely off base, but it seems to me 30% is a high number here. Yeah, the usual care is really high there. Yeah. So this is one a of the third th- of the patients that qualified in the usual care arm had a goals of care discussion. Now it is documented in the chart. Now it is to 30 days. So again, when things change in the patient's disease course, they may end up with a goals of care discussion on day 29. And then they ended up with one when in reality, that's probably not truly what the intervention was trying to do. But still one out of three, I think is a pretty big number there. Yeah. Especially in the usual care group. You, you preempted me. My first thought when I listening to the presentation of this paper and reading it as well was, well, this seems like though it's statistically significant, a 4% increase is a a pretty long run for a short slide. I'm not sure that this is something that necessarily I want to implement. However, just like you said, 30% is pretty high. When they talked about their prior pilot study in the ICU population, it increased from 5% to 20%. So uh, there's, I think I have two thoughts on this. One is I wonder if there was some institutional memory, both from their prior trials and prior efforts, like are these clinicians just because they're doing all these trials and investigations, just more aware and better at these goals of care discussions. And the other thing that I I wonder, I wonder this from, again, putting on my nerdy bioinformatics hat on is, well, if you're prompting these goals of care discussions for half of the patients, is that enough to make the clinicians think about it for all of their patients? So what I'm what I mean there is, I think an example, I can use a little bit more of a clinical example, explain that we all get alerts for DVT prophylaxis, and we get them on all of our patients. But if I was able to just say, I only need to do it for half, and I learn the healthcare system by reminding them enough that they think about it for all their patients. So I wonder if either of those things were going on here. Yeah, I think there's some possibility there. I think in designing the study, I think you might have some feeling that if you didn't prompt the clinician, that 
potentially the clinician wouldn't recognize that this patient was over the age of 80, they're probably going to recognize. But if 55 with a comorbidity and would then qualify and, and be eligible for goals of care, and therefore maybe you wouldn't do it because you wouldn't recognize it. But certainly you're right with institutional memory and with things like, you know, this patient's 90 years old, they probably need a goals of care conversation. That might be part of the reason that they had a 30% rate in their in their control arm. The other thing and you know I'm thinking a little bit on the fly here because this wasn't this wasn't part of my initial thoughts when I read this but as we talked about if some of these patients are covid patients they may have a higher rate in their in the the usual care covid group. Let me rephrase this. In their usual care group of patients that had covid simply because of the way you know covid was going and the way that hospitals were handling covid patients during that time. So that that may play in also. Quickly going over their secondary outcomes, uh, there was no difference in any of the reported secondary outcomes, which included more clinically relevant outcomes like receiving ICU care within 30 days after randomization, ED care 30 days after randomization, hospital readmission after seven days, death within 30 days, palliative care consultation, there was no difference either. Um, So they weren't, these goals of care discussions were happening potentially outside of requiring palliative care consultations, which I think is a good thing for our practice in general. But yeah, there's no real big difference anywhere else here. Yeah. And, and while, while we call those secondary outcomes, to me, I think they're the real outcomes we're trying to affect when we do these interventions. I, I think that's really, really, really hard. And, you know, one of the things that I've become a little bit more in tune to, and we talked a little bit about this at the beginning when we talked about good deaths, is was the patient's care concordant with their wishes. So if they, you know, after they pass could come back and tell you, you know, hey, that went exactly how I wanted it to go or, you know, wow, that wasn't what I was planning at all and that was completely out of bounds. That I think is the ultimate thing, right? The ultimate to me is to have discussions with patients about what are your wishes and how would you like this to go and then trying to help it go like they want it to go. It's such a hard outcome to get and they obviously don't have it and I don't even just thinking about it, I'm not even exactly sure how you would collect it and how you would know. But I think short of that are things like what resource utilization was done, how much did they use the ICU, how much time did they spend in the hospital, you know, that sort of stuff. They they don't have some of the the outpatient stuff here, like did they die at home, did they die, you know, in a hot inpatient hospice. They have a little bit of the kind of time outside, time spent alive outside of the hospital, which I I think is, at least in my basic understanding of a lot of palliative care trials, I think it's an important outcome. I think that's what a lot of patients want. Yeah, hospital-free days, I think, has been recommended by the palliative care societies. I apologize, I don't remember exactly which one, as the outcome of interest. Like, that is the outcome we should be targeting. And they have that as their secondary outcome. I think one of the reasons we're not seeing many differences in the secondary outcomes is because they're, though, again, statistically significant, it's a pretty small difference overall. Their primary outcome of goals of care discussions. Part of me, again, this bioinformatics hat is getting a lot of wear. I'll put it on for the third time, hopefully the last time for this podcast. I I wondered a little bit about the delivery of the intervention. And so in informatics, when we talk about informatics interventions, we go back to the five rights of clinical decision support. So this is getting the right information to the right person, the right format through the right channel at the right time in the workflow. They didn't provide detail on when these emails and pages were going out. And so when you're talking about the right channel, so the right a mechanism of delivery and the right time in the workflow. I mean, if this is coming out, say, just for example, like in the morning while these teams are on rounds, I 
both know that a lot of people when they're on service don't check their email or check their email like really limited and on rounds if you're getting a page on rounds if it doesn't need to be addressed immediately it's not something that it's one of those things i typically like put off part of me wonders if those were part of what we saw in this kind of small degree of difference so what you're saying is if you don't do the five rights it might get left out Uh, i i see what you did there you like it oh no i don't (laughs) so todd i am going to be the informaticist for your icu is this something that you want me to kind of push for and implement in the hospital you think this is something that we should do yeah good question i think the trying to do something in this space is important and i think you know prompting clinicians to do this i mean at our hospital i don't know if you know this or not but at our hospital there's supposed to be a code status form filled out on every single patient that comes into the hospital and the view when that was implemented was is that would be the opportunity to have these discussions right and they just aren't happening they just doesn't happen in fact the code status doesn't happen 50% of the time or something like that. I don't think it's, I don't think it's that bad, you know, for the record, let alone, you know, a more extensive discussion about what are your real goals of care? Not just, would you want us to do CPR if you die? And so I think movements in this space are important. And I think they can be really, really important to, to the care of these patients. I don't know the answer about implementing this in our practice because I don't really know. And as an informatician, you might be able to get these data, but I don't really know right now in this population, what percent of our patients have this done. So what is our control group percentage? I, I mean, we, we already commented, I would imagine, I think my gestalt was the same as yours, that we're, we're not even at their control group, right? Yeah. This intervention may be more effective at an institution where this research hasn't been yeah. done because we're probably lagging far behind. Yeah. I mean, if if you're in a place where this is 15% without the intervention and the intervention works and takes you to 35%. That's huge. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's probably more than enough bang for your buck to implement this hospital-wide. You always laugh at me because I always think these clinician decision support prompts are, are easy. Like you just put them in there. I mean, how hard can they be? Of course. And then you start talking about five rights or some some weird thing. I don't and know. And a left. Yeah, and a left because five rights doesn't make a left. But I think it might be I think it might be something to look into and something that might be worth investing, you know, some time in the in the bioinformatics and the clinician decision support area to try and see if you could do this at our institution. Yeah, I think my take on it is what we were mentioning before that it it all depends on where you start. I think thinking about this area and thinking about how we can be better about guiding our clinicians to these goals of care discussions is the correct answer. This exact intervention, it may it may not work logistically wherever you practice, but I think this is the prompt for me to say, hey, something here is better than nothing and we need to do something even if it's not exactly what they did in this trial. I think that's fair. I think that's an accurate representation of what my clinical takeaway of these results are. And I think it's a, a reasonable summary of this outstanding article. All right, so that's all we have for the ATS edition of the ICU Ed and Toddcast. Thank you to all our listeners. Again, thank you to everybody who's come up to us during the conference and told us how much they appreciate our work. It really means a lot. Thanks to the study teams for a great article. Thank you to Mike Gannon for all the great music. And thank you, Todd, for your time. Uh, And we'll see you next time. Let's go save some lives. Let's go save some lives. Are you still hot? I was about to say, like, I was like, I was like, a little chilly, but I'm fine. (laughs) 
right. You can turn on. You can turn it down. It's fine. No, go for it. No, it's okay. I just like have like my back of my hair is all wet. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. It's just a hot flash. It's okay. Is there a thyroid storm? I think based off of my body habits, otherwise we've ruled out hypothyroidism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to include that at the end of the podcast. There you go. <laughs> this podcast is made for educational purposes. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked material is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. It's inevitable. We try to stay away from opinions, but all opinions represent our own and not of any entity that we work at. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy the podcast.